Well, it was exactly nine years ago. Uh, early November 2009, Megan and I were uh, in Miami, at South Beach. She had a, a medical conference, and being the supportive spouse that I am, I wanted to go with her, make sure she wasn't there by herself. But uh, we had a great trip. It was a, a fun trip. Um, but the entire time, she was not feeling very well. She was a little nauseous, a little groggy. And so on the morning that we were about to leave, I just happened to throw out there. I said, well, what if you're pregnant? And uh, she kind of looked at me like, really? I said, well, yeah, that, could, you know, that might, be, might be possible. Um, <laughs> and there's only one way to find out if you're, uh, if you're pregnant or not. So we walked down the street to the drugstore by the hotel and I uh, picked up a test, brought it back to the uh, hotel room, and, uh, and we both kind of waited in the other room as we went to look at that, uh, that test. Positive. Oh, my goodness, we're going to be parents. And we found out in South Beach. <laughs> Fast forward eight months. I'd started my doctoral work at Suwannee. Uh, I was sitting in a preaching class. It was taught by Methodist Bishop and Duke Professor William Williman. Um, my cell phone was out on my desk. Uh, we were waiting at any day uh, for her to go into labor, and I was 90 miles away uh, doing classes on the mountain. Uh, but I got a text from her saying, you know, these contractions feel very different from the other ones I've been having. I think it might be happening. So I popped up. I grabbed my stuff. The whole class cheered. I hopped in the car, made it back to Nashville in record time without getting pulled over. We uh, went to the hospital later that afternoon. We got checked in. They put us in triage. From triage, they put us in labor and delivery. Many of you have been there before. And then that night, after we had the epidural in and everything was hooked up, it was about 11 o'clock, and, and the nurse walked in and said, now you guys try to get some sleep. <laughs> and at 2.40, AM, we welcomed our first child, Montgomery May Stauffer, into the world. And I will never forget the feeling of holding her for the very first time. My life had changed, and I would never, ever be the same. Clayton was born 19 months later in 2012. We didn't know if we were done having children. We went back and forth and back and forth and decided, Ella, let's give it one more go. And uh, we welcomed Wade two years ago into this world. Nothing changes you in life like becoming a parent. It gives you a feeling of joy and responsibility like nothing else seems to, to give. Um, when I first came to Woodmont 11 years ago, I was single, 27 years old. Uh, I was honored to be asked to come lead this church uh, Trey Flowers, many of you remember Trey, he uh, came with me as an intern. He was starting at Vanderbilt, and we made a decision early on that we needed to build a, a healthy and vibrant children's and, and family ministry, and there were people here who were hungry for that, and so that's what we set out to do, and, and over the years, and thanks to the leadership of ministers and staff and Sunday school teachers and lay leaders, We've watched that ministry grow and grow. It's been exciting. We went from 15 kids on the steps to now they fill up the whole front of the sanctuary and go down the aisle like you saw this, this morning. So what started as a small group of children has grown into something much larger and much busier. 
I said last Sunday, and I believe this with all my heart, that laying a Christian foundation begins when the kids are young. This is the age that they learn about God, about Jesus, and about Christian love. This is when they learn about kindness and compassion and service. This is where they learn about uh, prayer and reading the Bible. And this is the foundation that they will have for the rest of their lives. It will impact the way that they see the world. It will impact the way that they see and treat other people. The foundation that is laid in these early years forms who they are and who they will become. Think about the words of Jesus. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now we find ourselves as a church with a need for more space to keep doing that, to keep teaching and training these children, laying a foundation for their future. When you're a parent, you ask yourself the question, what are the values that I want to teach my children? What is the foundation that I want them to have? What role will God and Jesus and faith and spirituality play in their lives? And, and, and how can I be intentional in making that happen? The very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about foundations. Donovan read from Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus has given us the Beatitudes, after he's talked about salt and light, he's talked about anger, he's talked about forgiveness, retaliation, loving enemies, after he's talked about generosity and money and prayer, worry, judgment, bearing good fruit, Jesus says in Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like the wise man who built his house on rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. But then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on sand and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. We're doing everything we can at this church to help our children and our youth build their houses on rock, on a firm and healthy foundation that will stay with them for their, the rest of their lives. But you know what that requires? It requires that we, too, build our own houses on rock. We can't build houses on shifting sand and then expect something different for our kids because they are watching and they are paying attention. We can't say, do as I say, but not as I do because they are watching and they are paying attention. We can't drop our children off at church and tell them how important church is and then go to Starbucks for an hour. We can't tell our children to care for the poor if we never do it ourselves. We can't tell our children how important the Bible is if we never read and study it ourselves. We can't tell our children to forgive and to let go if we're always holding on to grudges and resentments in our own lives. We can't tell our children to trust in God if we don't trust in God ourselves. 
We can't tell our children to keep a positive attitude if we're always cynical and, and negative ourselves. We can't tell our children to talk, not to talk bad about other people if we're doing it ourselves. Laying a solid foundation for the lives of our children and grandchildren begins with the way that we act and behave. And as my kids get older and more observant, I continue to realize just how true this is. They are watching. They're watching carefully. It's a great story that drives this point home. I first heard it in seminary. Um, Donovan and I had an Old Testament professor at uh, Princeton named Patrick Miller, uh, truly one of the best in his field. But he told this in a lecture one time about a young couple who lived with their only son, uh, Alex, in a modest house. And they weren't rich, but they lived comfortably and happily together. And one day, the man's father, because of his ailing health, came to live with the young family. He'd grown old. He couldn't take care of himself. And the grandfather's eyes had grown dim. His ears were nearly deaf. His hands shook as he, he tried to eat his food. He was unable to hold his spoon, and most of the food would spill out on the, on the floor or on his lap. And, 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 and it was really uh, embarrassing and hard for the family to watch because it would go all over his, his clothes, and it was uncomfortable. Well, for months, the young couple discussed this irritating behavior of the old man. Finally, they became so frustrated by him that they set a table up in the corner of the breakfast room where he could eat by himself. And as he ate, he would look sadly across the, the room at his family over at the other table, and he would start to cry. And finally, one day, the old man's trembling hands could no longer hold the glass bowl, and he dropped the bowl, and it shattered into a million pieces. And the woman scolded him for making a mess, and immediately she went to the, to the market to buy him a wooden bowl so that if he dropped it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't shatter and break like the other bowl. And as the days passed, the old man sat in the corner of the kitchen eating his food out of the wooden bowl, spilling most of it on his lap and on the floor. Well, later in the fall, the father came home from work one evening and found his son Alex sitting in the middle of the floor, carving on a block of wood. He asked him, son, what are you making? And Alex quickly said, Dad, it's a present for you and Mom. I'm carving two wooden bowls so that one day when you and Mommy grow old and you come to live with me, you'll have something to eat from. You see, the next generation is always watching what we say, what we do, how we live. They're watching the way that we live our lives, and they're asking, is this consistent with what they are telling me to do? The capital campaign that will conclude next Sunday is called Building for Our Future. And next Sunday, we're going to have a celebration here, come casual. We're going to have food and bounce houses and music, all kinds of things. But this capital campaign is truly about sacrifice. It's about sacrificing for future generations. Because anything in life that is worth doing, anything in life that is worth doing, requires sacrifice. And this campaign is a chance for all of us to, to buy into this church, not just financially, but from a commitment perspective. Maybe you've been visiting for a while and you want to make this your church. 
Maybe you've been church hopping for a while and you're ready to just lay down some roots and, and find a church home and, and be committed there. We believe the future here is very bright. The scripture, the second scripture that we read this morning is the campaign scripture. It's taken from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And every single letter of Paul is unique in its own way because it's addressed to a certain community that's dealing with certain issues at a certain time. 1 Corinthians is, is an amazing epistle. The city of Corinth in ancient Greece was one of the great trading and commercial centers of the world back in that time. It was located at the crossroads of travel and trade and, and, and business. And as a result, Corinth was a very large city, a very busy city. It was also a very wealthy city. But there was another side to Corinth. On the one hand, it had a reputation for commercial prosperity, but on the other hand, it had a reputation for immoral living. At night, Corinth would come alive in different ways. It was the epicenter for business, but it was also the epicenter for some pretty crazy ways of living. And so Corinth was a golden opportunity for the gospel to reach men and women to help change and transform their lives. There were lots of divisions in the Corinthian church. They were always getting into it with each other. They were saying, I follow this person. No, I follow this person. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. There was this constant state of tension and conflict in Corinth. And Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, according to the grace of God, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and somebody else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is telling the people of Corinth that the foundation for the church has already been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ, and anything we do needs to be focused on Jesus Christ and his love and his grace and his compassion and his mercy Woodmont, the foundation for this church was laid 75 years ago when 51 people met at Woodmont School just down the road. The foundation is Jesus Christ. And now it's our turn to look to the future, to build on that foundation. Now it's our turn to move the church forward into the future. John Carpenter came into my office a few weeks ago. Um, John's done that before. I never know what he wants. Um, sometimes John doesn't know what he wants when he comes to my office. But uh, he told Amber, my assistant, he had something that, that uh, he said would make my jaw drop. And I thought, yes, a check. He's bringing me a check. <laughs> that wasn't what he brought me. He and Sandra uh, were going through some of their things. And John's dad, uh, Bill Carpenter's granddad, was, was the key uh, founding lay leader, one of the key founding lay leaders, but it, it, he was very much uh, committed to starting this church and to getting it going. And, and so they started the church in 43, and then in, and when it came time to build this sanctuary with this spire, um, it, it, they had to take a loan out from the bank to pay for it. And what John brought me were a couple of documents, and I've got one here. This is a document that shows a list of the original men who built Woodmont, and these are all men on this list representing the families. And it's the amount of money that they personally guaranteed to the bank. 
so they could borrow the funds to build this church. And it says what they did. In some cases, it says what they owned. But this is what they personally guaranteed to the bank so they could build this church that we enjoy today. And it's my hope and prayer that as we continue to look to the future, it's not just about building buildings. It's not just about doing something to say we did something. It's about continuing the mission of this church and laying the foundation for the next generation so that 75 years from now, there are people that can say, those folks sacrificed for the good of the church. They gave leadership. They stepped out in faith and they made this possible. It's our chance to step into the next chapter. And it requires sacrifice. Megan and I have never given a gift like this to anything before. We have three kids to educate, bills to pay, things to worry about. But we believe in what we're doing at Woodmont. And we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus Christ changes lives and this church is worth it. And this church will continue to do that for many generations to come. I had a minister once telling me something. I was at a conference in Phoenix, and he was speaking, and I was listening to this with a larger group, but he said something that's always stuck with me. He said, uh, the guy's name was Dale Galloway. He said, I'd rather do something great for God and fail than do nothing at all and succeed. And that's how I feel. This campaign is about doing something great for God. It's about doing something great together. And it's about making room for more families to come into this church and to be a part of this body of faith. I want to close with a quote. This quote has been on my mind in, in recent days. Some of you got a letter from me this week where I had this quote in there. Uh, and, and it's a familiar quote that many of you know. Uh, it's, it's a famous quote. It's by Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt once said this in a piece called The Man in the Arena. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the person who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end that the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory, nor defeat. I hope you'll join with me next week in committing to the next chapter of Woodmont. It takes all of us participating in this to make this happen, to step out in faith and to trust that God has the future of this church in his hands. Amen.